This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. Hi, this is Trisha. Today is a special July 4th edition of Health Gig, where we are replaying a wonderful conversation with former President George W. Bush. The original conversation took place in early 2018 before the passing of Barbara Bush and former President George H.W. Bush. Enjoy the conversation. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. We have quite the special edition of Health Gig this week. I'm your host, Patricia Riley Cook. And I'm your host, Dora Bush Cook. Get ready, everyone. We have quite the special edition of Health Gig this week. Ladies and gentlemen, Dora and I are beyond thrilled to announce this week's guest, the 43rd President of the United States, George W. Bush. So here's what you need to know. Dora's dad is President George H.W. Bush, the 41st President of the United States, and her mom is former First Lady Mrs. Barbara Bush. Dora is the only woman in our nation's history to live to see both her father and her brother become president. President and Mrs. Bush have five children, all of whom are incredibly close. To have siblings that you actually choose as friends is a gift beyond words. You will hear in no uncertain terms that Dora and President Bush embody this special gift. Dora leads today's conversation with her brother the only way she knows how, which is from her heart. The siblings have lived uniquely amazing lives, in large part because of their uniquely amazing parents. This interview allows for a rare glimpse into our 43rd president from a sister's point of view. Is Dora objective? Uh, Probably not. Is President Bush forthcoming and honest? Absolutely yes. So let's get started. We're so happy today to be interviewing the 43rd president of the United States, who happens to be my amazing brother. Thank you for having me. I'm very impressed with your project. Thank you. We ask very difficult questions here. And the first question is, who is your favorite sister and why? Well, uh, it's a woman (laughs) named Dorothy (laughs) Cook, and she's a very unusual lady. And she's my favorite sister because she's my only sister. Right. Okay. Let's begin where you are now. You're 13 years older than me, and you look pretty darn good, I would say. Can you tell us what your daily routine is and what you do to maintain optimal health? Well, the first thing I did to maintain optimal health is to stay away from alcohol and cigarettes. As a youth, I used to smoke and drink. I think you smoked camels or something. I did that, yeah. Unfiltered at times. Pretty much whatever mother was smoking, I would smoke. (laughs) And you drank B&B. I I did. Oh, yeah. I Mm -hmm. drank a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And around my 40th birthday, I quit drinking. And I think before that, I had quit smoking. And so my health improved a lot (laughs) by showing discipline. Mm -hmm. I exercised daily. I ought to rest more, but I don't. I'm one of these people that need to exercise in order to stay physically fit and psychologically healthy. 
So I do elliptical. When I'm at the ranch, I ride mountain bikes. When I vacation in Florida, I exercise in the gym and play golf a lot. And mm-hmm. so I'm physically active. And I think that's helped me stay fit. You do yoga down here. I do some yoga, but not in Dallas. Mm-hmm. But it's helpful. I stretch a lot. I've got a personal trainer that comes by the house twice a week when I'm in Dallas. That's good. And work on my core so that my structure stays strong. You used to be a runner. I was a runner, and my knees kind of gave out on me. But I ran a lot for the first four years of the presidency. Then I developed a little arthritis in my knees, and so then I started mountain biking. Mm-hmm. Didn't mom and dad go watch you run a marathon? I ran a marathon right after dad lost his presidency. I was so despondent, I decided to have a project, and the project was to get conditioned for the marathon. It happened to be the Houston Marathon. At about mile 20, the marathon passed Mother and Dad's church, St. Martin's Church. It just so happened the church was emptying, And mother and dad came out. Dad, of course, yells, there's my boy. And mother said, there's four fat women ahead of you. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me, I often have heard you say that you're a fat person on the inside. What does that mean? Well, it means I probably was overweight. When I got out of the Air Force pilot training, I was fairly active athletically, but I spent more time in the officer's club bar. And so I was totally out of condition. So I started running to get back in shape. I like to be fit. Mm-hmm. Our family loves desserts. Yeah, that's a problem. That's a big problem in our family. We grew up on desserts. I yes. mean, every meal we had a dessert. I understand. I, I still sadly kind of do that, which then causes yeah. me to want to exercise even more. But then you give it up. There's periods of time. Occasionally, you- I have shown some discipline on desserts. It's The problem is when you quit drinking, your body craves the sugar. You know, I became somewhat of a chocolate Sometimes I'm able to resist the temptation. Sometimes I'm not very well disciplined on dessert. Mm-hmm. I like to eat. Mm-hmm. That's a family thing. So more on the drinking. How did you decide to stop and what happened there? Well, I began to realize that alcohol was competing for my affections. So, for example, I can remember sitting down having a scotch by myself or a bourbon by myself in Midland, Texas, and the girls were going to bed, and I just let them go to sleep rather than read to them. And then over time, it became apparent to me that you have to make choices in life, and being a father is essential, and alcohol was beginning to compete with that responsibility. Plus, I was feeling terrible some mornings. Mm -hmm. I got in a routine where I ran to get rid of the alcohol But was thirsty at night, so I drank alcohol to quench the thirst. It's kind of this never-ending spiral. And so cold turkeyed it, 1986. So as a result, do you sleep? Pretty good sleeper. Pretty good. Yeah. During the presidency, press was fascinated whether or not I could sleep or not. And I tried to explain to them that I worked out extremely hard so that sleep came easier than it would have. Some nights I didn't sleep so well. Mm -hmm. And now, as I'm heading in my twilight years— I'm a nap man. I think naps are good for health. Mm -hmm. And so I try to take a daily nap. Mm -hmm. Dad would always take a daily nap. Oh, yeah. He'd take a nap, too. He was a nap man. It's a good example. What's your favorite part of the day? Morning. Mm -hmm. I get up. I'm pretty dutiful about getting Laura a cup of coffee. That's so sweet. Yeah. And I read the Bible or religious texts. I'm reading Charles Spurgeon, Sarah Young. Sarah Young is Jesus Calling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things I've done is I pick a passage I like from Jesus Calling and then text our daughters, Barbara and Jenna, 
and put a few emojis in there to make it more mm-hmm. interesting for them. And then they text back, which is good. Kind of makes me feel good that they're also following that, which I'm following. And so I start my morning there, mm-hmm. then look at some news items. So we're up at about 5.15 every morning. And I know something else you do, the what? jumble. Yeah, I do the jumble. Yeah, just mm-hmm. to And you and Laura do it together. Yeah, no, well, sometimes separate rooms. Oh, no, you do it separately, but then compare notes. Compare notes. Yeah. And I view the jumble as a way to keep your mind sharp. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I do that. And, you know, kind of head into the day. Now, when I'm in Dallas, I get to the office about 7.30. So that's mm-hmm. 5.15 to 7.30 to get cranking. Are you a breakfast man? Yeah, cold cereal. Mm-hmm. But not much of a breakfast. Mm-hmm. Light lunch. And kind of pile it on at dinner sometimes, sadly. <laughs> I know. That's hard because you've exercised hard, you've worked hard, and then you get really hungry. Really hungry. Yeah, I have that same issue. What makes your day great and what makes your day not so great? A great day is one that you feel joyful. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're appreciative of the day, that you see you see positive things during your day, mm-hmm. that you recognize beauty, for example. A good day for me is when I can be with friends. Mm -hmm. A good day for me is one in which I'm able to expand my mind, whether it be reading or painting. And then, of course, a good day is one that I'm able to get exercise. If I don't exercise, it makes a day a little worse. Right. I can't think of many bad days. I think the worst kind of days are when you feel ill. Yeah. I think, you know, your love of exercise and your commitment to it probably came from mom and dad. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about growing up in a family that, well, you know, loved athletics and sports? Well, it's a pretty and- competitive family. It was a constant swirl of activity, mm-hmm. mainly because, as you mentioned, the head of the family, mother and dad, were a swirl of activity themselves. Mother liked to play tennis and golf. Dad loved tennis and golf. Mm-hmm. Dad became a jogger at one point. I don't know if mother was ever a jogger. She jogged, I remember. It wasn't her favorite thing. No. But they set a good example. Of course, their parents, our grandparents, were very active yeah. people. They're golf, tennis. And then when you combine the example they set with a competitive drive, it lends itself to being disciplined. One of the things, you know, when I think of our grandparents, you know, that they've passed down the athletics and the golf and the tennis and the, you know, keeping fit and stuff. But Ganny and Gampy and most of Dad's brothers were really musical. Yeah. We're not. No. So therefore, uh, (laughs) if music creates health, we're unhealthy. I think so, because we lost that But you know what's interesting? Maybe it's that we weren't exposed to it. That's true. And maybe it's not too late. Maybe there's a world-class soprano trapped in your body. (laughs) I don't know. So, yeah, exactly. So a little bit about when you were president. Did you care for yourself differently when you were president than you do now? Was it easier or harder? Well, you know, the commute to the gym from the Oval Office is 45 (laughs) seconds. (laughs) And the thing about the president, the question is, what priorities do you have in life? Right. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people said to me, you know, I'd love to exercise, but I don't have the time. It's like saying, you know, I don't have the time for my kids. In other words, it's really essential to set priorities. Mm-hmm. And if exercise is a priority, then you can make time for it, no matter how busy you are. So, for example, rather than take time out for a big lunch or an hour for a lunch, you can take time out for 45 minutes of exercise. And so I've always been disciplined about exercise, not always, but from age 35 on or 30 on I was. 
And same in the presidency. I don't think it was any easier to exercise. It just was a priority. Yeah, but it was a priority when I was president and when I was not president. Right. I know that when you were president, and I can't remember exactly what it was for, but that you did some acupuncture with, what was his name? Colonel Needles. Uh, (laughs) Needles was a good dude, but it was, I can't, I think it was a back ailment or something. And so we tried everything. And so Needles came Did you do it for your jaw too? I got pretty tense at times. And so, for example, Christmas parties, Laura and I would shake hands and have a picture with like Five or 6,000 people a Christmas season. And toward the end of that, your neck muscles and jaw got a little tight. We had a bone cruncher there at the White House, an <laughs> osteopath, mm. that was real helpful at times to crack your neck and to loosen up your body. So massages are important to health, I think. And so I'd get weekly massages. You know, you come back on these long flights overseas and get a masseuse to come in and it really helped keep your body functioning well. And dad knew the importance of massages. And I remember a few years ago, he said, you know, Bob Hope got a massage every day. I think I can too. Yeah. Or something like that. So more power to the old and boy. Because he can't walk now. The massage is just a great therapy for him. Yeah, very good. Managing stress when you were president, was there anything special you did or was it the exercise? No, I think it was a lot more than that. I think managing stress, being around family helped because it got your mind off the issues of the day. Yeah, you'd come over or Marvin would come over. The girls would be around occasionally. And, you know, they weren't interested in hashing out policy. They were interested in just kind of making their brother and or father laugh or being in a different environment. Religion helps a lot when it Mm. comes to stress. Being surrounded by people you trust helps a lot. In other words, I never felt isolated. And I would suspect stress, one becomes more stressful if you feel isolated. Right. I had a wonderful team of people who's who I trusted, who ended up being friends. And so that's how you manage it. But the, the key thing is, is you got to believe in what you're doing. In other words, it'd be unbelievably stressful, I guess, if you made decisions and didn't <laughs> didn't really believe that decisions were the right decision. You made decisions based upon politics or made decisions based on Popularity. making people, yeah, p- people liking you. Mm-hmm. I guess that would presume that'd be very stressful. I love what you said about human connections. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, it's so true, not just as a president, but all of us need those human connections. Yeah, and to share Friendship is very important because true friends are somebody you can share, you know, thoughts or feelings with without fear of betrayal. And one little thing I remember you did, and it's something that we love to do in our family, and that's puzzling. Um, I did some of that with Laura. Yeah. Yeah, it just gave me a chance to kind of get your mind off the moment. I think anything that kind of got my mind off of the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, Look, I had a lot on my mind, and it was important to think about them, but... It's also important to find moments where you're able to relax mentally and physically. So it's been 10 years since you were president. Does it feel that long? I guess it would feel long if I was inactive. And I guess it'd feel long if I longed for power and fame, which I don't. My view is, is that eight years was plenty. I'm fortunate to have been a two-term president. I don't miss the trappings. If I miss it, I can presume it seemed like You know, it's been an eternity since I've had the trappings, but I feel like it's been pretty quick because I've been busy and Mm -hmm. satisfied. Mm -hmm. Content. Content. After 10 years, what are some of the moments that still stick with you? 
I think every Christmas sticks with me where we had our entire family at Camp David. Those were very fun. The pitch at Yankee Stadium sticks Mm -hmm. with me. Mm -hmm. The Ground Zero bullhorn event sticks with me. Mm -hmm. The day of September the 11th is clear in my mind. You know, the second inauguration was very clear because, Mm -hmm. and it was very meaningful because the first time you run, people really don't know you. They hope that you turn out the way they think they want you to turn out, but they don't know you. And the second time you run, you know, people have seen me laugh, cry, make decisions, stand my ground, do this, do that. And so people have a much better sense of who you are. And when they elect, reelect you, it's a nice feeling. And so the inauguration was kind of a confirmation. Do you like being president or post-president better? Or is that a dumb question? Uh, pretty dumb. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, do you like being a a toddler? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I loved being president. And, you know, I mean, it was by far the most meaningful part of my life. It was the most taxing for sure. You know, it was the most emotional. You know, it was very heady. It was an incredibly challenging period. I loved it. You and I, I think, are so lucky. How many presidents had living parents, of which one was also a president? (laughs) (laughs) None. None. Here's a be- here's a more interesting question. How many presidents have had living parents after the presidency? Yeah. Me. Nobody else. The only guy. Yeah. And so there's been two of us. John Kennedy, for a brief moment, had both parents alive during the presidency. Mm-hmm. And I had both parents alive during the presidency, which was incredibly helpful and nurturing. You know, Dad, there's a lot of speculation about my relationship with Dad during the presidency. But, you know, the m- most meaningful Part of the relationship is when he'd call and say, son, I'm very proud of you mm-hmm. or I love you. You know, for a while, he didn't say that. It was just like he was of that era where men didn't kind of profess love. But over time, he began to say it a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really mattered to me. So after big speeches, there'd always be I'd be in a limo riding back to the White House and mm-hmm. I'd, the White House switchboard operator said, your father and dad would say, oh, son, I just can't tell you how proud you got to be. Great speech. Then occasionally he'd slip into, but the critics, and I said, Dad, I don't want to hear about the critics. (laughs) He paid close attention to all the critics. So when he was president, I paid close attention to the critics. And when I became president, he paid close attention. because, And it turns out it's much harder to be the son and or father of a president than it is to be the president. You know, there's going to be criticism. You accept the criticism. Some of it unbelievably unfair. Some of it valid. But you don't let it affect your mood. First of all, the American people watch a president very carefully. And if the president is upset, if the president has self-pity, those aren't good leadership traits. Right. Speaking of leadership traits, what would you say are some of the I think one of the most important ones, well, one is humility, Mm -hmm. to know what you don't know, recognize you don't know, and find people who do and listen to them. Mm -hmm. I think another one is to have vision, In other words, people want to follow somebody with a vision, and Mm -hmm. that vision has to be informed by principles. It's important to have a culture, particularly as president, where it's not based upon an individual, the culture. The culture is based upon service to the country. I think good leaders are people that can laugh, not in a mean way, but in a way that kind of adds levity. And good leaders are people who share credit and take blame. Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe laugh at yourself. Yeah, you got to laugh at yourself. I mean, the best humor, particularly when you're president, is to make fun of yourself. And I was quite capable of that. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I gave myself plenty of material to work with. (laughs) What's the funny story about, what's the guy's name from Saturday Night Lauren? Yeah, Lauren Michaels. So Lauren Michaels came down to the Bush Center 
and it was a session on humor and politics. Yeah. And of course, Saturday Night Live is the classic humor and politics. And over dinner, he told me that he had a very creative speechwriter who came up with strategy. The guy playing me kept saying strategy. And I said, wait a minute, you didn't invent strategy. I said strategy. <laughs> and he said, no, you never said it. I said, wait a minute, you telling me for 16 years, I thought I said strategy <laughs> and you invented it? He said, that's what I'm telling you. I said, well, let me ask you this. Did your man come up with misunderestimate? <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. So back to mom and dad, and I wrote a book about dad called My Father, My President. But it's a darn you, good one, I might Thank add. you. But you wrote a book called 41. Yeah. The idea came to me from David McCullough's daughter. Hmm. Dory? Yeah, Dory, who mm-hmm. said, uh, my dad, when he was researching the book on John Adams, wished that he had read John Q. Adams' thoughts about his father. And I said, mm-hmm. you know what? That's a good idea. So I did. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful book. All children have unique relationships with their parents. And so I'm the youngest. And Yeah, they loved you more than me. Kind of. But mom and dad were very busy when I was growing up. And so I really cherish the quality time with them. But Mm -hmm. as a result, I think I'm a little bit of a homebody and I love being around my family. How would you characterize your relationship with mom and dad and how that sort of shaped Well, unlike you, I was an experiment. (laughs) You were number one. (laughs) They had never had any children before, and so they were trying to figure out how to be a parent. As mother one time told me, the reason you turned out the way you did is because when I was pregnant uh, with you, I smoked and drank. (laughs) (laughs) And so my childhood was disrupted by the death of your sister and my sister, Mm -hmm. Robin, which when I look back at it, it was sad, but not all that highly emotional because mother and dad shielded me. Yeah, I think that my relationship with mother was very unique in that after Robin died, she kind of clung to me as a child that she could cling to. Right. (laughs) And even though Jeb was small, but he was a toddler and I was like six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. And so it created an interesting bond that enabled us to develop a very unique relationship. Interestingly enough, I probably am as much like her as I am dad and Mm -hmm. therefore occasionally would clash with her. (laughs) (laughs) Occasionally. Yeah. (laughs) But part of my problem is I would love to needle mother to get a rise out of her, and it turns out it was quite easy to do. And so I I learned to dial that back. What was the story where um, (laughs) mom, she could... Oh, yeah. So Mike Proctor came over. I'm still in touch with Proctor, by the way, our neighbor on Ohio Street in Mm -hmm. Midland. And Proctor came over and said, come out and play. And I said, I can't. I got to play with my mother. Mother heard that and realized that, you know, she was kind of smothering me at that point in time and basically booted me out to hang out with my friends. Well, I mean, I do know about you and mom butting heads because I remember one time we were in mom and dad's bedroom in Kenny Bunkport, which is where we gather, weirdly. We used to gather there a lot. And I remember you plopped down on the couch and you put your feet on the coffee table. And mom goes, I don't care whether you're president or not. Get your feet off the coffee yeah. table. Yeah, she loved to use me as a foil. Yeah. We've got a very close relationship and a very loving relationship. Yes. Man, it's fun. Dad and I have got a very close relationship, but it's no more close than any of his children. You know, there's just different. We're different people. And therefore, we relate to our parents in different ways. It's all, however based upon unconditional love. 
you and I are dealing with what everybody at some point in their life deals with, and that's aging parents. Mom mm-hmm. is 92, dad's 93. And I remember when dad started losing his balance when he had Parkinson's, first had Parkinson's, and he would start to lose his balance and sort of almost fall over. And I remember it made me feel scared. I remember talking to you about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how that made you feel. And Well, it, it, look, there is no life without death. And there's inevitability to it. And so the way I tend to look at it, it's instructive to watch dad age because he's aged joyfully, which is a wonderful lesson to pass on. It's no complaining, no feeling sorry for himself. No. It's unbelievably instructive. I tried to speak to him about death, and he wasn't interested in talking about it, whether he feared death or not. My mother is quite open about it to me, at least, and says she doesn't fear death, looks forward to it at some point in time. And so it's kind of a just a reminder of the realities of life. We're very fortunate, however, in that death has come later rather than sooner. Mm-hmm. And so I look at it as a blessing. Yeah. And mom and dad, we are lucky because they have this uncanny ability to bounce back after they've yeah. had some setback or something. And the perfect example of that was the Super Bowl yeah. last year. And dad had been in the hospital. And this is another lesson, too, about setting goals. He set a goal for himself. You know, he wanted to be out by the Super Bowl. And sure enough, there he was. There he it's a was. huge moment. I took the girls to see dad in the hospital on our way to Florida like three years ago. Oh, I remember. And uh, I told Dad, I said, Dad, my library's opening in April, and I sure hope you're there. And he said, I'll be there. Now, this is a guy who I was pretty confident was on his way to eternity, to the point where I had called his chief of staff and got her to put out all the details and stuff like that, you know. And we carried a funeral suit to Florida, thinking that we'd have to, you know, go to his funeral. So when we opened the library... There he was sitting right next to me, and he and they asked him to speak, and he like gave a thirty second speech, and he said, "How was that?" I said, "Perfect," and it was a perfect moment. It was, it was. What I remember about your visit to um, the hospital was, I remember you calling me and saying, "Look, whatever you do, don't be crying in front of Dad. (laughs) Do not be crying." So I was as strong as I've ever been. Because you were instructing me on what not to do. <laughs> and I remember you went in, you and the girls, and Laura went in to see Dad, and you came out bawling, bawling. <laughs> well, and I know, was like, hey, what you, happened? Hey, well, I'll tell you what happened. So Jenna's pregnant, and Dad's lying there in the bed. First of all, I see you, and it's you uh, know, kind of a tough place. And uh, he was there, and he was very weak, and his voice was incredibly weak. Mm-hmm. And so Barbara and Jenna were rubbing on his head, and Dad leaned over and rubbed Jenna's stomach. He said, there's death, and then there's the beauty of life, Aww. which was a tearjerker. So sweet. Yeah. So back to your life now. Okay. Uh-huh. Cheer your um, note. Yeah, cheer your note. You reached the pinnacle of your career as president, and you were solving some of the world's biggest problems. Then one day it was over. So how did that feel? Well, I had mentioned earlier that I was fortunate to be a two-term president, so I knew exactly when I was going to leave. And frankly, we were looking forward to a new chapter. Presume some president wished the presidency never ended, and therefore when they leave, it's a little, you know, it can be hard. When we left, it was uh, ready to go on. And there were some unknowns. What was life going to be like? How would I stay busy? Laura went down and bought a house in Dallas I had never seen. 
Mm-hmm. It's called a faith-based initiative. And so there was a lot of anticipation. Now, the good news for us is that we had a place, our ranch in Crawford, that we really wanted to go to, you know, yeah. that, that we're comfortable with. And there was no doubt we were going back to Texas. And so it wasn't all that hard. Now, the adjustment was <laughs> different. And because what you you wake up one morning, the next morning, and you have no sense of responsibility. For eight years, your body has become and your being has become somewhat accustomed to the, a lot of responsibility. And then you wake up and there's none. And so it's kind of an eerie feeling. In my case, I'm a project-oriented person. And so I just started writing a book called Decision Point. A very fine book, I might add. I appreciate that. It sold a lot of copies. Mm-hmm. That's good. You mentioned the ranch. <coughs> and before we leave the ranch, I just wanted to say, is that the place where you find the most peace? It is. It's a beautiful piece of property. I love to mountain bike, mm-hmm. and I've got fabulous mountain bike trails there. I've got people from Dallas come down and ride all the time. There's always people around. Relaxing. You do some cool things, like you have a tree farm. I sell trees. You know, we're beginning to move some. Laura has restored a lot of the prairie, some of the prairie, to native grasses, which mm-hmm. is an important project for. Mm-hmm. Owning a piece of property that you care for can be very peaceful. Your paintings Please tell everyone how it got started. Well, I'm a person that has to be busy, engaged, and it turns out that writing books, giving speeches, working at the Bush Center, exercising was not enough. Mm-hmm. And by chance, and a lot of life happens this way, if you have an open mind, by chance, a guy suggested I read Winston Churchill's essay, Painting as a Pastime, mm-hmm. which I did. And I'm a big admirer of Churchill's. And I basically said, if this guy can paint, I can paint. <laughs> I told Laura and a friend of hers named Pam, who is an artist, and happened to be at the house that day. Pam Nelson. And Nelson. And I mm-hmm. said, you know, I want to paint. And they both looked at me kind of like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, they weren't discouraging. They were somewhat skeptical. And so Pam suggested Gail. And so Gail came over to the house. made a nice conversation. And she was very skeptical. Turns out Gail might not have been a Bush supporter. Anyway, uh, so she realized I was serious. I bought the paints and the canvases and the brushes, had no clue what it's about. And so she came over and I had to set up a little area to paint upstairs in our house. And I painted a cube. And, you know, it was one of those moments where it's like, wow, that's really interesting. And so Gail left. And so I took out a watermelon and painted it and painted an apple. And then she'd come by weekly and I painted every day, and as I painted, I gained more and more confidence. One of the things Gail did was strongly recommend I take the MoMA course about art history, something I never touched. And so I got online and took the MoMA course and then started studying other artists and the history of art. And it's been a life-changing experience. I remember that early period when you told Laura, you also, around that time, called mom and I happened to be visiting mom (laughs) and told her that you were going to paint. And mom said, well, just send us some pictures and you send us the melons. (laughs) And mom looked at it and she just said, oh, there's room for improvement. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she did. But on the other hand, she also challenged me. You know, one time when I was getting ready to run for governor, mom denies this, but I pretty much tell you it's true. I was going to run against Ann Richards, and her attitude was, you're not going to win. That's what she told me. I said, okay. (laughs) Watch. And so she said, I don't think you can paint. I said, I sure can. She said, well, paint my dogs. 
And so I became a pet portrait painter. That's right. Under the instigation of mom, I painted your pet. Mm -hmm. Then I got better and painted him again. Right. But painting is a learning experience. There's no like limits. You can't possibly conquer painting. In other words, it's constantly changing, a constant challenge, which is what I like about it. You know, I'm pretty disciplined. I paint a lot. And what's cool is you have this incredible style of your own. Well, that's important. Yeah. That's a compliment, by the way. When I first started painting, I was a reproduction painter. In other words, I'd see a picture and try to just reproduce it exactly as I saw it. As I gained confidence, I was more apt to put paint, different amounts of paint, push colors, you know, trying to get colors to interrelate better in painting. And and that's just part of the learning experience. Mm -hmm. Painting is a liberating experience because it kind of gets you out of the moment. You kind of just so enthralled with the paint and what you're trying to do that everything else becomes secondary. And to me, that's liberating. Plus, I see colors differently, you know, and think about painting a lot. It's almost meditative in a way. In a way it is. Time moves quickly. Yeah. The great thing about oil painting is that you paint, and if you don't like it, you scrape it off. And you got to be bold enough to do that. And so over time, I gained a lot of confidence, and therefore I had bigger brushes, bigger canvas, much more paint. What is your dream subject to paint? I like painting people. Mm -hmm. I love painting faces. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because I like people. So I painted a lot of people. I painted myself a lot, which I'm comfortable doing after I particularly learned that Rembrandt and Van Gogh painted themselves a lot. (laughs) I guess Um, there's something egotistical about painting. I remember when, I think it was my computer that got hacked, they had stolen some of your paintings off my computer, some of which were self-portraits, and the New York Times decided to psychoanalyze you. Yeah. That's what happens when you're a former president, you know, but you just got to ignore it. What's interesting about that episode is that you were one of the few people that really encouraged me because I would send you copies of the paintings I did. And you were always, wow, that's great. Very encouraging, you know, which is always important in life to encourage somebody. Definitely. I mean, I don't remember my brothers asking for painting and they say, well, it's very encouraging. (laughs) But the thing is, what I'm so you know, flabbergasted that you can go and which I think is such a great teaching lesson that you can go from ground zero to if you're passionate about something, you can learn something new and be good at it. Yeah. Well, it keeps you healthy at any age. So I tell people the lesson of this story is you don't know what you can do unless you try. Laura's got a great line in her speech. She said, if somebody asked me whether George W. would be president, I say, you know, maybe. Would he ever be an artist? No chance. And so in many people's minds, I'm the least likely painter. But to me, it's a nice lesson. And that is try things and you just don't know. I think painting has helped you to really probably look at the world in a different way. It has. And appreciate and sort of maybe gratitude comes in because you see the beauty and you see the colors and you see. Exactly. You don't know. It's been a mind expanding experience. And the good news about painting is it never ends. Right. And the key thing, though, is I always need instruction. I always learn a lot from my instructors. And so I'm thrilled when they come over to the house and I listen to them carefully. I'm constantly asking questions about what artists you think influenced this or that. And so like I was painting trees and one of my instructors said, you ought to look up so-and-so. This guy painted trees in a unique way. And I did and said, wow, that's an interesting technique. And so I tried it and worked out pretty good. 
Do you prefer oils over watercolors? I do. Oils are much more forgiving. Watercolor is very difficult. Yeah. I haven't spent enough time watercoloring to condemn watercolors, mm -hmm. but I can just tell you when I've tried, it's hard. Yeah. It's opposite oil. Oil is you go dark to lights, put your darks on first, then lights. Watercolor, you put your lights on first, then darks. And oils, I would think, are more forgiving because I've seen you in your studio in Maine, and I've seen you paint over things. Paint over. You can dry. If it's still wet, you can scrape it and paint. You can paint wet into wet. I mean, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of techniques you can use. Dan Nevins, who was severely injured in Iraq, he mm -hmm. lost both his legs from an IED, and he also had a traumatic brain injury. Um, he spoke at our Achieving Optimal Health conference this past year. He, he's amazing. And his story of finding yoga and introducing the healing powers of yoga to other vets was incredibly inspirational. And so you painted him. I did. And you also painted over how many? I painted 98 different portraits of warriors, some of them on a large collage. Some of them I painted twice. I painted two women each one on the collage and each one separately and one other guy I painted. And so, I don't know, maybe 96 different individuals or 95. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Evans being one. Uh, yeah, he's a very unique guy. He's overcome a lot and is now an instructor and a healer. Portraits of Courage is the book you wrote where you tell the story of each wounded warrior and right. then you have their portrait. The reason I did that was because one of my instructors, Cedric Huckabee, who's becoming, by the way, a well-known Texas artist, said, you know, I'm aware that you painted world leaders. Another artist suggested I paint world leaders, which is a great suggestion because people focus less on the art, quality of the art and more on what did I think about, you know, Putin or the Dalai Lama. And he said, you ought to paint the faces nobody knows. And it just is one of those moments where I just clicked and said, I'm going to paint wounded warriors. And so I painted Chris Turner, first guy I painted. And the reason I painted Turner is because I sat next to Turner uh, like two weeks prior, and he told me that he couldn't get out of his mind the image of a buddy of his getting shot and that it was very hard for him to talk about it. And so I painted a very dark Turner. And then Turner, turns out, because he started talking about what he was dealing with, the post-traumatic stress, that he began to heal. In other words, part of the healing process is to talk about it with somebody who is can understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And so I painted two of Turner, dark Turner and light optimistic Turner. But yeah, it was a great experience for me because first of all, I value my friendship with these warriors. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I view them as very unique individuals who will make a significant contribution to the country. And I wanted to highlight the need for society to help warriors transition from the military to civilian life. And as importantly, tell warriors the best path to recovery, which is admit you got a problem. Secondly, find peer-to-peer -peer networks. In other words, other warriors who've been through what they've been through and to befriend them and to talk to them. Part of mental health is to share your experiences with people that you can relate to. And thirdly, mm -hmm. then find help. And I know that it's PST. Post-traumatic stress. A lot of people, and technically it's PTS, PTSD. PTS, but you've taken off the D. D. Yeah. And the reason why is... So you're somebody's going to get hired and you say you're dealing with any problems. Yeah, I've got a disorder. And so the impossible employer is going to say, I don't want somebody with a disorder. Right. We happen to view post-traumatic stress as an injury that can be healed. 
That takes a lot of work, but it's part of the vocabulary of helping vets recover. Right. And then you stay in touch with them, and then you have a golf tournament. Have a golf tournament where we bring in new warriors Mm -hmm. and bike rides where we bring in new warriors. Or sometimes we have the warriors have already been through the program come. It's kind of an alumni situation. This in itself is a network. Mm-hmm. And they help each other, and then they help people. Words out that you know, Rod Rodriguez, who's on the in the book, can help some special forces guy deal with post traumatic stress, mm-hmm. and they get in touch with Rod. So the network's constantly expanding. Can you just tell us we're wrapping up here shortly? Can you tell us what's going on at the Bush Library and Institute? Yeah, the institute is we're working on domestic excellence, a good education practices, primarily how do you hire and retain good principals. Mm-hmm. We're working on relations with Mexico and Canada for economic growth. We believe good immigration policy is necessary. We've got leadership programs with Bill Clinton's library, Dad's library, and Linda Johnson's library. We're starting a new leadership program for vets and the leaders of vet organizations. Plus, we're engaged overseas, cervical cancer on the continent of Africa. We're spreading freedom through women's initiatives in Tunisia, mm-hmm. Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're working with Burmese kids to teach them how democracy functions. We've got a scholarship program for North Korean escapees. In other words, we're freedom people. Yeah. And you have papers from dissidents that you store. Yeah. And we've got the stories of people like Vaslav Havel, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the Dalai Lama, right. people who have faced down authoritarian regimes. And so, yeah, we've got a whole history of this. And this is going to be very helpful for people who study this period of time. Uh, And it's going to be important for America to recognize that we have a duty to help those who are living under tyranny. Trisha and I had the privilege of meeting the Dalai Lama. We were at a conference out at the University of Wisconsin at the Center for Healthy Minds. And he was talking about the positive qualities of the mind and mindfulness and meditation. And anyway, he absolutely loves you. <laughs> He's so cute. He's a sweet guy. I love him. He's so What's sweet. What's interesting is that the Chinese view him as a revolutionary, as somebody who wants to create a Tibetan independence movement. Mm-hmm. And He's the least likely revolutionary there is. This is a guy who is unbelievably peaceful. He does want to preserve the Tibetan culture, and he is disturbed by the fact that the Chinese are trying to overrun the Tibetan culture. Mm -hmm. But I was his biggest offender with the Chinese, but they wouldn't listen. They had their mind made up. But he is a sweet man and a good, dear friend. Yeah, and you're doing good things in the world. Now we're going to ask you questions that we ask everybody that we interview on our podcast. But first, I'm going to tell you words that make me think of you. And you tell me what you think of these words. Joyful. Very joyful person. Mm -hmm. Spontaneous. Yes, I'm uh, at times unpredictable. Yes. We think you're very authentic. Thank you. That's a high compliment. What you see is what you get. You're very outrageous. At times I can be, uh, hopefully in a constructive way. Like our mother, phoniness is something that I tend to call out, maybe sometimes over the top, but yeah, I do. Makes it life fun, I think. Thank you. Um, creative. Hope so. I'm much more creative now that I've become a painter. Mm-hmm. And curious. Very curious person. I read a lot. You know, I love history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just finished Grant by Ron yes. Chernoff. You and I just read Woman in the Window. Yes, we did. I'm now almost through with A Gentleman in Moscow. Uh It's a great book. 
Yeah. By the way, really good. Mom writer. read that, and Marvin read that. It's a great writer, mm-hmm. and uh, so I love to read. And so I hope one would say he he does have a curious mind. What three books do you think everyone should read in their lifetime? Well, my view is, uh, and I know this is quite controversial, but I think the Bible. Yes. Even if you're not a Christian, I think you ought to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. If you're interested in history, I would read Modern Times by Paul Johnson, The Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. It's a period piece, very well written. I love that book. Can you share a quote that you love that gives you strength and peace? One of my favorite quotes is from Teddy Roosevelt when he said, it's not the critic who counts, mm-hmm. not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. And then he goes on. I, I think that. that's a great quote because it's the willingness to tackle tough things mm-hmm. and understand that as you do so, there's going to be critics, but you know, if you're convinced of what you're doing, then it's important to push on. Yeah. If you could tell your 30-year-old self one thing, what would it be? My 30-year-old self? Yeah. Alcohol made you very undisciplined, and you did some very stupid things on alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite meal? My favorite meal is the one that I'm about to have. What is it? <laughs> oh, you know, I like a good burger. Mm-hmm. Look, I am not a health food guy. <laughs> I love a Mexican food. I don't like beets. No. Okay, good. Ten years from now, what are you doing and what does your world look like? So I'll be 81. My world will be painting. Yes. I hopefully will be riding mountain bikes and able to play golf. I think I will be if I stay fit. I hope that I am swarmed by grandkids. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got two now. I'm hopeful that there'll be some others coming. Mm -hmm. I anticipate spending a fair amount of time on the ranch. How about Maine? Oh, yeah, definitely Maine. I hope so. Yeah, I'll be up there with you. Good. Yeah, we'll be up there. You know, I hope I'm constructive, you know, helping improve people's lives in a way that makes sense. I don't want to kind of retreat from the responsibility of being a good citizen. You know, on the other hand, I don't anticipate, you know, being the critic of the current, whoever the president is. I think it undermines the presidency, and I think it's not good for the country. If you could sit next to anyone tonight at dinner, who would that be? Other than my favorite sister? Yeah. Okay. I can't Um, come. Winston Churchill. Mm. That'd be interesting. What what would you talk about, world affairs or painting? Well, first both, both, but first of all, as I understand the man's nature, is I wouldn't talk about anything. I'd be listening to the guy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you. I love you. I love you back. Very sweet. Very good job. Very good job. I didn't realize you were such a good questioner. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.